Good day, and welcome to the Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting exclusively here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. First, let's start in Southern California in Kern County. Kern County, which sprawls more than 8,000 square miles, connecting the Sierra Nevada slopes and the Mojave Desert to the counties on the central coast, is the oil capital of California. The county produces about 70% of the state's oil and more than 90% of its natural gas, and it has plans to ramp up production. Recently, the county approved an ordinance that would allow thousands of new wells to be drilled over the next 15 years. The decision comes despite deep opposition from local farmers and environmental groups, and it puts the county directly at odds with a state that has branded itself as a trailblazer on climate and set ambitious goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In doing so, Kern has become a microcosm of a debate happening across America and around the world about how to tackle the climate crisis in communities that are built on fossil fuels. As the county chairman, Philip Peters, concisely puts it, Kern County runs on oil. Well, the debate has been going on for years, according to Ethan Elkind, a director at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. He explains, quote, What you are seeing here is the main oil and gas producing county in California is going one direction, and the state is trying to go a different direction. And it's so far unwilling to override the county on the issue of local oil and gas production. Well, it's a complicated problem. Not only does Kern produce 90% of California's natural gas and 70% of the state's oil, Kern County is also a leader in renewable energy production, accounting for roughly 25% of California's supply of renewable energy. But officials argue there is not yet enough revenue from the new industries. For Kern, a county where nearly 20% live below the poverty line, Expanding oil production means expanding the budget. Well, in general, if America itself finally weans itself off planet heating emissions, the country will look and feel very different. Landscapes from coast to coast would be transformed, carpeted in wind turbines and solar panels, with enough new transmission lines to wrap around Earth 19 times. The populace would whiz past each other in their electric cars and trucks to and from homes equipped with induction electric stoves and heat pumps. The air would be near pristine. Hundreds of thousands of people who would have prematurely died from the toxic fossil fuel age would still be alive. Well, it's an appealing vision, according to Eric Larson, senior research engineer at Princeton University. He said, in general, it will be a more pleasant place to be living in when we get to net zero emissions. We will have cleaner air and will have done our part to avoid disastrous climate change. That's a good thing for us and the rest of the world. Well, getting to this point by 2050, 
is a key goal set by Joe Biden in the effort to stem the worsening impacts of the climate crisis, which is already turning large parts of the U.S. West to charcoal and pushing water to lap at the doorsteps of the nation's coastal cities. But avoiding cataclysm requires a metamorphosis unlike any other in American history in a narrowing window of time. Said Larson, who led a Princeton team's exhaustive analysis of the path to net zero emissions that is helping guide the longer term thinking of Biden's administration, he said, quote, in terms of the pace of change, it's unprecedented. It's not going to be a walk in the park. We need to start now. And if we delay starting now, we're going to have to go even faster. End quote. Well, how quickly societies move away from coal, oil, and gas is in many respects the defining existential challenge of our time, one that the White House frames in both grim realism and fresh opportunity. Says Gina McCarthy, the president's top climate advisor in an interview with The Guardian, right now we are robbing young people of their future. But there's a bright future ahead if we work together. It's doable and must do at the same time. Well, in other federal government news, there is a push to electrify the U.S. mail trucks, and it's gaining wider support, setting up perhaps an unlikely win for both Postmaster DeJoy, appointed by Trump last year, and President Biden. This, according to an article in the Washington Post, it says the Postal Service had long spurned EVs over cost, but sustainability goals from the White House and top House Democrats could transform the agency's fleet. It says here House Democratic leaders are lining up behind a White House push to allocate $8 billion in taxpayer funding for the latest iteration of the mail truck paving the way for a fully electric fleet instead of the piecemeal strategy that current U.S. Postal Service leaders have been pursuing. The Postal Service Agency, which is generally self-sustaining and does not draw public taxpayer money, had drawn up what's called a, a bootstrap plan for new vehicles, the vast majority of which would run on gas. And it would do that as it wrestles with almost $200 billion in liabilities and debts and faces years of projected losses. While House Democrats' plan would relieve the agency completely of the truck expense, while significantly advancing one of President Biden's key sustainability objectives. Well, initially, Democratic Party leaders in Congress had shown little enthusiasm for a program of using taxpayer money to buy new vehicles for the post office because the plan outlined initially by the agency in February, which would cost taxpayers $6 billion, called for only 10% of the vehicles to be electric, exasperating Democrats given the new administration's aims. The remaining 90% of the trucks would have internal combustion gasoline engines that could be retrofitted with electric drivetrains later on in their lifespan. At the time, 
Postmaster General Louis DeJoy had told lawmakers that at $6 billion of taxpayer money, the agency couldn't afford to make a bigger EV commitment than 10% of their fleet. He said charging stations and other infrastructure required would tack on another $2 billion to the cost, taking it from $6 billion of taxpayer money up to $8 billion in order to go from 10% EVs to 75% EVs. Well, the agency's aging fleet of vehicles are barely getting by, and some have infamously burst into flames. Well, two powerful committee chairs, Maloney, a Democrat of New York, and DeFazio, a Democrat of Oregon in the House of Representatives, now want to go ahead and provide that full $8 billion for electric trucks and EV infrastructure. Though the amount could get whittled down in negotiations with the Senate, momentum is building for the plan, according to a draft letter that House Democrats plan to send out to their comrades in Congress, the White House, as well as Speaker Nancy Pelosi. A copy of the letter was obtained by the Washington Post, and so far more than 50 Democrats have signed on. They're urging members of the Democratic Caucus to support what's called the Next Generation Delivery Vehicle Program, which would allow the post office to use $8 billion of taxpayer money to purchase almost 200,000 new EV trucks over the next decade. But the financial support from taxpayers would come with certain clean energy stipulations. The letter says, to ensure that any federal funding appropriated to the Postal Service for fleet acquisition is used appropriately, we would also include a requirement in the legislation that at least 75% of the Postal Service's new fleet must be electric or zero emission. Further, we would require that by 2040, the Postal Service only purchase electric or zero emission vehicles. Well, such an agreement to spend $8 billion to almost completely electrify the nation's mail service would set up a once improbable scenario. Democrats and DeJoy in alliance on postal strategy, one that would play well with environmental activists, commercial mailers, and package shippers. Said Committee Chair Maloney in a statement, the Postal Service has one of the largest vehicle fleets in the world, but far too many postal vehicles are outdated, guzzle gas, and pose a risk to the dedicated Postal Service employees who use them to serve the public every day. As the Postal Service replaces its aging fleet, it is critical that it purchases electric vehicles to protect our planet, and it can be at the forefront of electric vehicle technology, setting an example for the country and the world. But it needs funding to purchase the necessary vehicles and infrastructure. The Postal Service needs our help, and it needs it soon. Well, such a turnabout marks a major shift in the party's approach to DeJoy, as last year scores of House Democrats, including both of these committee chairs, have previously called for the Postal Chief's complete removal over historically poor mail service and agency missteps since he took over in June 2020, before the election. Well, it should be noted the Postal Service has not made a profit since 2006. They lost almost $10 billion last year in 2020 alone, leading to deep cutbacks in infrastructure spending. 
That's partially why Postal Leaders prioritized the lower upfront costs of its chosen gas vehicle over the larger savings that EVs will take years to realize. But the agency also needs to act soon, experts say, given the rapid pace of deterioration of the current fleet. Well, now let's head to the UK to discover what other countries are able to do that the US isn't. In his novel, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley writes of a society in which recorded voices subliminally prepare babies for their future role as consumers. They whisper, I do love flying. I do love having new clothes. Old clothes are beastly. We always throw away old clothes. Ending is better than mending. Ending is better than mending. Well, Huxley depicts a dystopia, but the slogans he describes might equally apply to common products today. When the Second World War ended, the tremendous productivity of the wartime American economy suddenly posed a problem, with manufacturers desperately requiring new markets to keep their assembly lines humming. Disposability was one of the solutions adopted, as the industrial designer Brooks Stevens explained to The Guardian. He said, Our whole economy is based on planned obsolescence, and everybody who can read should know it by now. We make good products, we induce people to buy them, and next year we deliberately introduce something that will make those products old-fashioned, out-of-date, obsolete. We do that for the soundest reason, to make money. Consumers in America and throughout the world were encouraged to become dissatisfied with perfectly serviceable items, so that instead of making one-off purchases, they updated regularly. That psychological campaign was reinforced by mechanisms that made the continued use of household items difficult. As one industrial designer exulted, the planned existence spans of products was the greatest economic boost to the American economy. Well, environmentalists now refer to the late 1940s post-war period as the Great Acceleration, the period in which humanity's impact on the planet increased exponentially. If you're 80 years old or more, Almost 90% of carbon emissions ever generated by humans can be dated to your lifetime, a consequence of the deliberately wasteful economy unleashed during the post-war economic boom. While the lack of repairability does not merely exemplify the problem with how we consume, it's also symptomatic of the way we now produce. Well, the UK government has had enough of that. Tougher rules are being introduced to make appliances such as fridges, washing machines, and TVs both cheaper to run through efficiency and last longer through repairability. This, according to the UK government. New legislation there aims to tackle premature obsolescence in electrical goods. Short lifespans built into appliances by manufacturers so that customers have to buy new ones sooner and also make these products now more energy efficient. 
The rules include a legal requirement on manufacturers to make spare parts available to consumers, which aims to extend the lifespan of products by up to 10 years from the manufacturer of so many new goods no longer needed. Well, these new measures in the UK, which apply to what are called white goods, such as washing machines, dishwashers, and fridges, as well as items such as TVs, aims to reduce the 1.5 million tons of electrical waste that the UK currently generates a year. Higher energy efficiency standards are also being set for electrical goods in addition to making them last longer. These higher energy efficiency standards, officials say, would save consumers in the UK an average of $100 a year more on bills and cut carbon emissions by using less electricity over their lifetimes. The UK Business and Energy Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng said, Our plans to tighten product standards will ensure more of our electrical goods can be fixed rather than thrown on the scrap heap putting more money back in the pockets of consumers while protecting the environment. Well, let's head from the UK into the upper atmosphere with an alarming new report about changes to the atmosphere as a result of the climate crisis. This also comes care of The Guardian. This is fresh news from yesterday, Wednesday, May 12th. It says climate emissions are shrinking the stratosphere, scientists reveal. Humanity's enormous emissions of greenhouse gases are shrinking the stratosphere. This is according to a new study. The thickness of the atmospheric layer has contracted by 400 meters since the 1980s, the researchers found and will thin by about another kilometer by 2080 without major cuts in emissions. Well, what does this mean when the atmosphere, parts of the atmosphere shrink? The changes have the potential to affect satellite operations, thus the GPS navigation system for the world, as well as radio communications like KVMR. Well, the discovery is the latest to show the profound impact of humans on the planet. Just last month, in April, scientists showed that the climate crisis had actually shifted the Earth's axis, as the massive melting of glaciers redistributes weight around the globe. Well, the stratosphere is a specific layer of the atmosphere. It extends from about 20 kilometers to 60 kilometers above the Earth's surface. That's the stratosphere. Below the stratosphere is what's called the troposphere. That's where we live. Humans and animals live here in the troposphere. And here, carbon dioxide heats up and expands the air. This pushes up the lower boundary of the stratosphere as the troposphere where we live continues to grow higher and higher as it heats and expands, shrinking the stratosphere. But While in the troposphere, CO2 heats and expands the troposphere, once it leaks into the stratosphere, the opposite is true. When CO2 enters the stratosphere, it actually cools the air, causing it to contract even further. 
Well, the shrinking stratosphere is a stark signal of the climate emergency and the planetary scale influence that humanity now exerts. This is according to Juan Aniel at the University of Vigo in Spain and part of the research team. He said, it is shocking. This proves we are messing with the atmosphere all the way up to 60 kilometers away from the surface of the Earth. Well, scientists already knew that the troposphere was growing in height as carbon emissions rose, and scientists had already hypothesized that the stratosphere was likely shrinking above that. But the new study is the first to demonstrate this with facts and it shows it has been contracting around the globe since at least the 1980s when satellite data was first gathered. The ozone layer that absorbs UV rays from the sun is in that stratosphere. And researchers had thought that losing ozone in recent decades could be to blame for the shrinking because less ozone in the stratosphere means less heating, so more contraction. But the new research shows it is not ozone levels, it is the rise of CO2 that is behind the steady contraction of the stratosphere. Well, the study reached its conclusions using the small set of satellite observations taken since the 1980s in combination with multiple climate models, which include the complex chemical interactions that occur in the atmosphere. How this might affect us in the future? Researchers said this may affect satellite trajectories orbital lifetimes of satellites, they might come down sooner or they might not come down, and retrievals, grabbing satellites. It could also affect the propagation of radio waves and eventually the overall performance of the worldwide global positioning system and other space-based navigational systems. Well, Professor Paul Williams at the University of Reading in the UK, who is not involved in the new research, said this study finds the first observational evidence of stratosphere contraction and shows that the cause is in fact our greenhouse gas emissions rather than ozone. He said some scientists have called the upper part of the atmosphere the ignorosphere because it's so poorly studied. This new paper will strengthen the case for better observations of this distant but critically important part of the atmosphere. He said it is remarkable that we are still discovering new aspects of climate change after decades of research. His own research has shown that the climate crisis could triple the amount of severe turbulence experienced by air travelers. He concludes by saying it makes me wonder what other changes our emissions are inflicting on the atmosphere that we just haven't discovered yet. Well, we're going to close today's climate report with an opinion piece written by someone named William J. Ripple. He's a climate scientist and an author of The World Scientist's Warning of a Climate Emergency. And he says Joe Biden's 50% emission goal is ambitious, but it's still not enough. Joe Biden wants to cut U.S. emissions in half from their 2005 levels. However, since emissions have been slowly declining since 2005, this actually amounts to only a 37% drop from current levels. That, in a nutshell, is the issue. Our leaders are adhering to a template that doesn't meet the urgency of the moment. 
The U.S. is not even the world's largest emitter anymore, and China, the biggest polluter, seeks to build more coal-fired power plants, failing to reach carbon neutrality until around 2060. Unfortunately, that is a perfect illustration of just how disconnected we are from the gravity of the situation. We're in a climate emergency, but we still have time to limit the pain. The policy choices, corporate actions, and overall responses from the global community over the next 10 years will dictate whether we sink or swim. As carbon emissions spark rising sea levels and extreme weather events. But so long as we continue to use the Paris Agreement as the benchmark for success, we will fail to make enough progress in time. Paris was supposed to be a starting point, not the end goal. It was an unprecedented initial effort to bring the world's countries together, acknowledge a glaring and neglected problem, and set preliminary goals for substantive action. But it lacked teeth and ambition. The Paris Accords call for limiting warming to the range of 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius, but significant climate disasters are already occurring at 1 degree warming. Over the past five years, most countries have failed to make any headway on reaching their individual proposed commitments to the Paris Agreement. The U.S. retreated from the issue, China ramped up its pollution, and only two countries worldwide, Morocco and Gambia, have been identified as actually being on track to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. In the meantime, we've borne witness to the five hottest years on record, unprecedented storms, sweeping wildfires, uncurbed deforestation, and approximately 167 billion tons of fresh new carbon being pumped into our atmosphere. Given all this, unsurprisingly, there is a mounting body of evidence that proves 2050 to be an inadequate target for reaching net zero emissions. In addition, we do not fully understand climatic feedback loops that will occur over the next few decades and potential tipping points that could be disastrous. The climate crisis is accelerating much faster than most scientists anticipated. And if we don't immediately enact wholesale and socially just changes throughout our policies, our economics, our economies, our food consumption habits, and our relationship to nature, we will fail. There is a lack of appreciation around the sacrifices we have to make to survive. Spending money on infrastructure and betting on future technologies to save us is not enough. We must reduce overconsumption by the wealthy and middle class who have been the primary beneficiaries of fossil fuel consumption. The U.S. government urgently needs to declare a climate emergency and immediately start phasing in a national carbon fee to make the polluters pay. The list goes on. Biden's messaging around climate feels aspirational, highlighting the job opportunities and promise behind realigning our society, and he's not wrong. There are plenty of opportunities on the horizon for those bold and quick enough to seize them, but fixing our economy and providing incentives for green energy is just one piece of the puzzle. What about agriculture? What about overconsumption and the explosion in population growth? 
What about the mass gutting of our natural resources? Saving the world from a climate catastrophe isn't going to be quick or fun. It's going to require grit and tenacity, ingenuity and commitment. Holistic, comprehensive measures are the only way we get out of this. That's the way you solve any complicated and massive systemic issue. Finding the solution to this problem is the focus of the World Scientist's Warning of a Climate Emergency report I co-authored last year. Here we have more than 14,000 scientists from 156 nations endorsing the six steps needed to survive the climate crisis. Those steps revolve around energy, cutting short-lived pollutants, restoring and protecting natural ecosystems, shifting the world's diet to more plant-based foods, transitioning to a carbon-free economy using ecological economics, and reducing the unsustainable growth in population that will likely bring the world's total to more than 8 billion in two years. This will not be easy. It will be the greatest undertaking in the history of humankind, and that's what it's going to take to survive and continue to thrive. That was a piece written by William Ripple, a climate scientist and author of the World Scientist's Warning of a Climate Emergency. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting here on KVMR-FM at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For more news and views in between broadcasts and post-show links to today's news, you can find the Climate Report page on Facebook, and feel free to also email climatereport at kvmr.org.